Hey, gentlemen, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome back to another year of Amen. Somebody was asking me this morning how many years we've been doing this. I think this is the 22nd time around. We've studied several books in the Bible together, like Genesis and Exodus and John and Romans. And those of you who are in line, just keep on going through line. Those of you who are eating, just keep eating. Those who are talking, not. Uh, <laughs> hey, listen, talking's important. I found that out a long time ago. And we're so glad you're at these tables. And you will find out a little later during the amen year that we've got small groups available for you. Some of you are already in small groups and have had them for years. And you're continuing. If you want to invite somebody into that small group, uh, Lon, uh, later on they'll be able to sign up for small groups. Is that right? So we'll explain all that later. But we'd love for you to be able to study the Bible in here and then discuss it with somebody. And actually, you know, the stuff you're going to remember about your Bible study is what you say, not what I say. So if we can get you in a group talking to each other about what you're learning in the Bible, you actually remember that a whole lot better. So we think groups are great. We also think that to grow spiritually as a man, you really need other men in your life. So we're going to be encouraging you to be in small groups later and... Uh, We'll, we'll make those available to you. We'll explain that later on. Now, you'll notice this year we're going to be studying what we call the Catholic epistles. That just means the epistles that are written universally to the church. Uh, you, you know, in Paul's epistles, he's writing to a particular church, uh, you know, the church in Philippi or the church in Ephesus. The Catholic epistles are written generally. That's the reason they're called Catholic or universal. And uh, we're not looking at all of them because we've we, some uh, years ago we studied First and Second Peter, but we'll be looking at... Uh, James, uh, which is written by Jesus' half-brother, and Jude, which is written by another half-brother. So these people knew Jesus pretty well and knew his teachings pretty well. And we're going to see some amazing teachings in James and, and also in Jude, although it's a short little book. And then we'll spend a good bit of our time in 1 John, which is a major epistle of the Apostle John. And John was the one, you know, who was probably... I mean, somewhere, either John or Peter were the closest disciple to Jesus. We think John probably was. Uh, he was the one to whom Jesus commended his own mother when he was dying on the cross. He, he said to John, behold your mother, and said to his mom, here's your son. He's going to take care of you. And tradition teaches us that John actually did that. And that Mary went with him uh, to Ephesus and the cities there where he was bishop and until her death. So... These are the very close half-brothers and disciple of Jesus. These are the men who knew the man, and we're going to get to know the man, Christ Jesus, through these men. So we've got some great things to study, things that are very applicable to daily life uh, as a man in the community, in your workplace, if you're married, uh, in marriage and in the home, all that's going to come out this year as we study uh, this portion of, of God's Word together. You can look in your schedule and see we're not only looking at those Catholic epistles, but we're taking little side roads too because we want to look at specific texts in the Bible that address uh, the man in various contexts in which he lives his life. Uh, the man before God. The man in his nation. We'll look at that next week. Uh, that's kind of timely, isn't it? Uh, today, the man in his world. How do you live as a citizen of the world? Uh, we'll, we'll look at the man and his faith, the man in his home, his marriage, his children. If you're married and have children or you're even thinking about it, that'll be very helpful to you and so on. The man in his church. So all these relations and contexts are very important. There's some scripture texts that speak directly to those and we're going to take some time to look at that too. So it really ought to be an exciting year. Now for those of you who are new among us, let me just remind you that probably just a little less than half of the people around you are from Second Presbyterian Church. Most of the, the men here are from other churches or from no church at all. And any of the above is fine. We, we just welcome everybody. We think it's great to have different opinions around the tables and in your small groups. So if you get a, a, some fireworks every once in a while and discussions about these things, that's great. That's how you learn. So we welcome all of you from different backgrounds. Uh, some of you have read the Bible for years. Some of you are going, I don't know what the Bible, how many books, I don't know anything. Great, welcome. This Bible study is also for you. So 
We'll try to teach in such a way that if you feel like you're a beginner and really kind of making your way around, or you feel, or you're a Bible teacher yourself, hopefully it'll be helpful to both of you. That's that's a challenge for our teachers, but that's what we're going to try to do. So please uh, know that you're welcome here, uh, regardless of of your background. And and uh, if we can help you in any way, we're always glad to do that. There are number of pastors from different churches and Bible teachers here, people who are experienced Christians. If you have questions, if you just ask around in the room somewhere, you're bound to bump into somebody who will at least give it a shot and try to help you. Uh, so um, avail yourself of anything that's not nailed down. It's for you. Uh, breakfast, and I guess they'll talk to you about more logistics later on, uh, and uh, make yourselves at home. Well, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 24. This is a psalm of David. It's a very important psalm, and it's written at a very important time in David's life that we'll examine in just a moment. It gives us a very important message that we need for today, and that is, what is this world that we're living in? How do we as men navigate being in this world? What are the kinds of decisions we're supposed to make? What are the kind of attitudes that we're supposed to have? How do we just relate to this cosmos in which God has put us? Let's look at Psalm 24, and I think we'll see at least three very important things about the Lord himself. Psalm 24, this is on page 966 in your ESV study Bible. By the way, if you're, if you're new, our text, at times we've, had, uh, we've recommended commentaries or we've insisted that you have certain commentaries. Uh, this year, we're just going to use the ESV study Bible if... If you have the time, ahead of time, if you'll just read the, the notes in the ESV study Bible relative to the text we're going to be looking at, you'll be well prepared. You'll, your juices will be flowing a little bit, and you'll probably get more out of it. Uh, and if you don't have an ESV study Bible, uh, you can just go down to the bookmark. We've got them here, so I think it'll be open right after Amen. You can go down to our, our bookstore and put in an order there. You can go on Amazon.com and get one. The ESV Study Bible, it, by the way, it's, I think it's a really good translation. It's literal enough, but it also reads very well. So you'll get a very close translation from the Hebrew and the Greek right into English, and you'll get it done in a way that has literary uh, beauty to it. And then in this ESV Study Bible, you get introductions to every book in the Bible. You get uh, references and footnotes on things that are maybe a little obscure, some geographical references or some... Um, names that you wouldn't, you're trying to figure out who, who in the world is that, in the notes, it'll, it'll show you quickly. So you can read a text and read those notes and really have a pretty good grasp of what's going on. So we're just going to use the ESV study Bible. I'll be reading, I'll be calling out the page numbers. So that's kind of our text. You don't have to get one, but it may be easier for you if you do. So page 966, ESV study Bible. Let's look at Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord uh, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Okay, let's, you can notice in your text, your English text there of Psalm 24, that it's broken into three stanzas, this psalm. It's written by David. And those three stanzas really are what we're going to use. I think they're accurate. There seem to be three major sub-themes that are going on here about the man and his world. And, of course, what we want to see is how the Lord himself has made the world. 
for us to relate to the world successfully, we've got to know what, where the world came from and whose is it. And we're going to see, first of all, Roman numeral number one, the Lord is sovereign over the earth. The Lord is sovereign over the earth. The first word in the Hebrew text is Yahweh, the Lord's. The Lord's is the earth and the fullness thereof. The point is, this belongs to the Lord. Now, this is an amazing thing. It's written by David, obviously. And we don't know for sure when it was written. But because of the last stanza, verses 7 through 10, most scholars speculate that this psalm was written when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You'll remember that David was anointed king while Saul, who was a wicked king, was still king. David was pursued by Saul for years, and we looked at that some months ago about the life of David and the life of Saul. David was, spent a lot of his life fleeing from Saul. Finally, Saul dies, David becomes king, and now he's going to establish Jerusalem as it was meant to be, the place where God dwells among his people and the capital city of the universe because the temple would be there later. David's son Solomon would build the temple David would have much to do with the design of it and the dream of it, but Solomon, his son, would build it. David was going to bring in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, which was what the priest carried through the wilderness and God promised to dwell with them over the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant now is being brought into Jerusalem as the consummating moment of establishing Jerusalem as the capital city and David was rejoicing. You'll find this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The reason we think that's true is because here it says in verse 10, lift up your heads, O you gates. In other words, the gates of the city. Uh, lift them up. Make way. The king is coming into town. Who's the king? He's the king of glory. Who's the king of glory? God himself. Where is God? He's dwelling over the Ark of the Covenant. So God's presence is to be established in Jerusalem. Now, remember that when David is writing this, he's a tiny little nation. I mean, they're hardly even a nation at all. And they are surrounded by very powerful groups. You know about the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Termites, all the people that were around, around Israel, threatening Israel all the time. The Philistines were on the Mediterranean uh, coast and they were continually threatening Israel. They were surrounded by all these nations. And then you had the huge nation of Egypt to the south. You had the kingdoms of the Hittites, which is where Turkey is today. The Hittites were to the north. And then emerging was the kingdom of Assyria. They would come into full power a little later. But they were a big threat just to the north. So you, had, you were surrounded by these huge empires. And then you had these other tribal groups around you that were threatening you, and every single one of them had, had a theology. Every single one of them had gods. And they claimed that their gods were their gods, and that their gods were powerful. And they claimed that their gods were faithful to their tribal people, that they were the gods of those people. And so when you go into battle, of course, you take your gods, and the most powerful god is the one who's Warriors win the battle. So when you win the battle, it's a victory for your God. And so they're all competing. These pagan deities are competing for supremacy. David has this little group. He's barely a nation at all. He's just finally defeated the Jebusites who were guarding Jerusalem. So he, he now is able to enter the city himself. And he's bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. And he doesn't say that Israel is the Lord's. He doesn't say, Jerusalem now is Yahweh's. No, he says, the earth is the Lord's. He said, the, the God of this little group of people is the God of the entire world. So that he's the God of all the gods. He's the God of all the nations. Who is this David? Well, who does he think he is? What kind of claim is this little boy king making? Same claim he made. When he was fighting Goliath. Why did he fight Goliath? Because Goliath was holding David's God in contempt and treating David's God like he was just another tribal God, like the gods of the Philistines. And David took on Goliath and showed him who God was. God is the God of all the nations, including nine foot six Goliath and his Philistines. 
So David is making this cosmic, enormous claim. And he's got this little teeny city and a little teeny nation surrounded by hostile enemies. Sound familiar? Okay. Look, if you're going to believe in the God of the Bible, there's, there's only one way to look at him. And that is the way that he describes himself. He is the owner of the entire universe. So the God who is your God, your personal God, the God of your family, the God of your local church, he's the God not just of America. This is not just, this is not just God's country. Let me tell you what God's country is. It's everything you can see, everything you can imagine. That's God's country. He owns it all. So this is what David is saying. He owns a, he owns the earth. And he not only owns the earth. You want to know who, who really owns this stuff? You know who's got the title deed to this? It's, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord. It's God that we worship. He's got the title deed to everything. He owns it all. This has massive implications for you and me. You know, we think of the stuff we own. You know, we keep tabulating what we own. You don't own anything. You, you've got responsibility for some of this stuff. And the more stuff you own, you just end up with more responsibilities. You know, it's just, it's, it's really kind of futile if you think about it. You're going to live to, what are you going to live to? 78, 82, 98, you know, and then psh, you're out of here. You don't own that stuff anymore because you never owned it in the first place. You were using it. You were managing it. You took responsibility for it. Some of you have big egos and you want to be responsible for a lot of stuff. Some of you have little egos. You're happy just to be responsible for, you know, you're just your little 10 by 10 hut, whatever it is. But you don't own any of it. And David is making a claim he as king doesn't own it either. The earth is the Lord's. And so we've been put here also as his creatures. So guess what? He owns us too. So we're his property. The earth we walk on is his property. Our time is his property. Our resources are his property. Everything is property. That's the claim that David's making because God made it clear that he makes that claim. So he says not only, look at verse 1a. I'm sorry, verse 1b. He not only says the earth is the Lord's, but he says the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So he doesn't just own the crust of the earth. He owns everything. Now, right now, I think our scientists have identified about a million and a half species of plants and animals. Most scientists tell us that they have not discovered nor classified about 97% of the species that are in the earth. So what does that mean? That means we've got probably 200 million species. Now, we're losing some every year, unfortunately, but we've got millions and we've got hundreds of millions of species. Isn't it amazing what chance produces? Uh, what, what David is saying is that in the beautiful animals and plants that he was aware of, you know, in Judea, God made all that too. So God not only owns the earth, he owns every crawling thing. <laughs> you realize that in these species, uh, I looked up, there are 4,000 species of earthworms. Isn't that amazing? And just think about the species that are down in the sea where we rarely even have our uh, high-pressure submarines go down and explore. We've got species all over the place, things that we don't even know about, things you can't see that are so small. And God owns it all. Why does he own it? Well, look at verse 2. He made it. That's why he owns it. For he has found it. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. He made everything. You say, how did he do that? Well, I'm not sure exactly, but the Bible says that he spoke and it came to be. He didn't take a little clay and work it, roll it, and put it on a pottery wheel and shape it. No, he just commanded and boom, it came to be. And I understand scientifically, we think there was a you know, great explosion at the beginning and this little fraction of a nanosecond at some point may very well have been. But let me tell you, where that little dot of matter came from and energy came from God. And you want to know when it exploded? When he spoke. He did all this. When's the last time that you had an explosion in the kitchen and it came out to be a perfect Rembrandt on the side of your wall? 
This is no accidental explosion with things just randomly flying all over the place. Look at the design of this universe. And if you have studied astronomy at all, at all you know how delicately it's put together, how that, that the coefficients, the mathematical co connections between bodies and gravity and how things are spinning and, and expanding and staying in some order and how we can have this earth with atmosphere and s sunshine that doesn't bake us and boil us to nothing and, and cold weather that doesn't freeze us into nothingness. We, we have this controlled environment and then we have human beings who are able to think and walk and talk and it, it's amazing to me. You know, the scientists are just desperate to find some other planet among the billion trillion planets that exist. We got to find one somewhere that has some little walking, talking humanoid somewhere that communicates to us. And we put our ears out there in the, you know, in the satellites and we're listening for messages from around the universe. Surely someone out there is trying to communicate with us. And we get little me, 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 me in the universe. Oh, so you see, there's some humanoid out there from another planet. Why are we doing this? Why are we so desperate to find this? Because we do not want to live with the idea that God actually spoke us into being and that we're accountable to him. That's the whole story. That's the narrative. we got to find some explanation for your sitting in your chair besides the fact that God made you. Because if he did, that changes everything. And that's exactly the point David's making. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all that dwell in it. All the species. He made it all. And sometimes I think we lose sight of the vastness of the universe that we live in. Even the earth itself is so small. You know, on January the 19th, 2006, we launched New Horizons. You know, this little, what is it, 1,000 pound uh, traveler, you know. And the thing left the earth at about 38,000 miles an hour. That's what it takes to get out of the orbit. So at 38,000 miles per hour, things racing through the universe. It gets to Mars and gets a little boost, gets itself up to in the 40s. And by the time it gets to Jupiter, it gets another little boost from Jupiter. So now it's traveling at 51,000 miles an hour. Now, do you know how fast 51,000 miles an hour is? If you shoot a bullet, that's 1,700 miles an hour. 1,000. 700 miles an hour. I'm talking about 51,000 miles per hour. So if I shoot a bullet, in one second it goes half a mile. So to get from here to the airport, if I shoot a bullet, it takes about 20 seconds. If it follows the roads. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So 9.7 miles on the roads from here to the airport. So shoot a bullet takes 20 seconds, just 20 seconds. Now, I'm getting ready to go to the airport in just a minute. It's going to take me about, what, 20 minutes with this traffic. It'll take just 20 seconds with a bullet. Do you know how long it takes New Horizons to get from here to the airport? That's about it. Seriously. Two-thirds of one second. That's how long. Now, that's how fast New Horizons has been traveling. Now, how long did it take New Horizons to get to Pluto? last summer. Nine and a half years. For nine and a half years. <laughs> and it gets to Pluto. Now, it's, it's continuing to travel. And as long as it's got, you know, some, is, it's 250 watts are working, or 450 watts are working, you know, we'll get maybe some messages back. And it's just hard to imagine how we can get any messages when something's traveling that fast. But it continues to travel. It's going out into what we call the Oort cloud. Obviously, it was found by some Dutchman. Um, so it's the Oort cloud. And there you have asteroids and all kinds of things out there. It'll probably hit something you know, and explode. But it's out there, and it's going to explore the Oort cloud, which is what surrounds our solar system, this cloud of asteroids. Now, do you know how long it's going to take New Horizons going at mile an hour to get through... The end of the Oort cloud, you know how long it's going to take it going that fast? 10,000 years. Can you feature that? 10,000 years of going 
51,000 miles an hour and you get to the end of our so-called solar system. Now, it's going to keep traveling probably if it survives and it'll probably go to a neighboring solar system within our galaxy. Do you know how long it'll take it to arrive at the neighboring solar system within our galaxy? 25,000 years. Now, that's just our neighboring solar system. Do you know how many solar systems we have in our Milky Way galaxy? Somewhere between 100 and 140 million solar systems within the Milky Way galaxy. Do you know how many galaxies we suspect we might have already discovered? Somewhere around 140 million galaxies. Is your mind blown yet? My, mine is. I can't, I can't feature. The, the multiples end up being so great, I can't possibly keep up with this. Now, let me tell you what David says, the most important thing about all of this. God made it. God owns it. That's the world and the cosmos you live in, and this is the God who made you and to whom you're accountable. That's what David is saying. Now, he didn't have all this scientific knowledge, but he could look up into the heavens, and he could see the cosmos, and he knew who made it. It was clear to him. It ought to be clear to us. Not only do you have the vastness of the universe, but you have the, the tininess of the universe. Let me give you an example. Look, for example, on your, your notes. Look at the very top where it says Amen Bible Study. And where it says Amen Bible Study, you have the, the numbers 2016 to 2017. What I want you to look at is the dash between 2016 and 2017. That's called a millimeter. That's a millimeter. Now, look at that millimeter and divide it into one thousandths. Okay? Shave it into a thousand little pieces. That's called a micron. And so the smallest organisms that we know are a couple of microns. Okay? You obviously can't see them. And if you wanted to see them, uh, you'd, you, if you took a a uh, drop of water, uh, you'd have to expand that drop of water to, you know, as big as this room in order to see anything uh, in that drop of water that, that ha is one of these smallest uh, uh, creatures. But now, <clears throat> keep looking at your millimeter there. You got it shaved into a thousand pieces. Now, take one of those thousand pieces, and I'd like for you to divide it by 10,000. Can you do that? Now you just hit an atom. So if you wanted to see an atom in a drop of water, you'd have to have a lake 15 miles wide and strain your eyes to see an atom. That's how small an atom is. You know who made all of the atoms? Yeah, you got it. That's what David said. The Lord is sovereign over the earth. He owns the earth, and he made the earth. And that's the reason that David wrote this great Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, etc., etc.? Who are we? Well, God made us and he made us uniquely in his image. There is no other animal, there is no plant that is like ourselves. We are the crown of his creation. I know this is unpopular today to say that your species is any greater than any other species. But the Bible teaches us that God made everything. But when He made you, He didn't just say it is good. He said it is very good. And He loves you. He made you. He designed you. And He made you especially so that you could know Him in ways that nothing else in the universe can know Him. You can think thoughts after Him. You can imagine the vastness of His universe and the tininess of the atoms, and you can think of His greatness and you can worship Him. That's unique to human beings. They can draw inferences from facts. They can come up with theories and hypotheses. They can draw conclusions from evidence that's presented to them. And they can conclude that there is a God and that He's great 
and that I owe my whole life to him. That's what human beings can do. So use your human capacity to be a man in the world that God has made and allowed you to observe the moon and the stars and all the wonders of his creation. So the Lord is sovereign over all the earth. Now look secondly at verses 3 through 6. And here we learn something else really about the Lord with whom we're dealing and the world in which he put us. And that is the Lord is holy. And we say that because David is questioning who in the world can approach him. A, verses 3 through 4, we learn that those who approach him must be holy themselves. Those who approach him must be holy. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And David says, here's the answer. First of all, those who approach him must be holy in character. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So David says, not only is this God creative and powerful, but he's morally and spiritually holy. He's holy other than ourselves. He is pure. There is no imperfection in him whatsoever. And David says the only way you could possibly approach a being like this is if you yourselves are holy. And he says, so what you need are clean hands. That is that you haven't ripped people off. You haven't taken people's lives. You haven't been perpetrating social injustice. You have clean hands. And you've got a pure heart, a heart that's unified in worshiping the Lord. So he says, that kind of person can approach the Lord. You say, well, I'm not qualified. Well, I agree with you. I'm not qualified either. So how are we going to get that holiness? Well, we'll see in a moment. But look, secondly, it's not only your character, it's your action. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So how are you going to approach the Lord? You've got to be worshiping him alone. So if you worship yourself or you worship your possessions or you worship your sexual life, or you worship your children or your grandchildren, you worship something else other than him, you're lifting up your soul to an idol and you're swearing by what is false. You're, you're using other things as gods in your life. If you're going to approach the Lord, he must be your only God. Now, how's this going to happen? Well, turn, keep your finger there in Psalm 24, but turn to Isaiah chapter 6 and that would be on page 12... 51, 1251, Isaiah 6. And here, Isaiah, who came, oh, about 400 years later, we're told that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And he And one called to another and said, now here's the song of the seraphs. This is what they said to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, let's stop right there. There's only one place in the Bible where you get this kind of statement. In English, if I want to emphasize something, I can put it in italics or I can put an asterisk by it or I can underline it or I can put it in gold, I can, you know, get my highlighter and make it yellow and say this word's important. In Hebrew, they they didn't have any of those things. So how did they emphasize things? They repeated them. They just said it over and over again. In fact, you'll find in the Psalms, the Psalm we're reading, look at verse 1a and verse 1b. It's a repetition. And that's how in Hebrew you emphasize something. Now, nowhere in the Bible are you ever told that God is love, love, love. Nowhere are you told that He is true, true, true. But here, you're not only, it's not only repeated, it's repeated twice. God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only place in the Bible where you have one of His attributes repeated. Obviously, Isaiah is making a point because the seraphim were making a point that of all God's attributes, When sinners look at him, this is what stands out above all, is his intense, perfect holiness. So this is what Isaiah saw after the king died, after 52 years of an administration, 
And Israel's wondering, what in the world are we going to do? Isaiah goes in the temple and has this vision, and he sees the, and hears the seraphim. Now look at verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds shook, of course, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, look how Isaiah's responding, Woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah says, I am lost. Billy Graham says, I am lost. Why? Well, we'll keep reading. For I am a man of unclean lips. This is the Billy Graham of Israel. He says, my lips are filthy. What else? I dwell in the midst of a people of filthy lips. That's you and me. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm toast. I'm cooked. It's over. I'm out of here. Why? Because I've dared to look upon the Holy One of Israel. I'm a sinner. So Isaiah, who was obviously everyone knew, if you pick out the holiest man in all of Israel, it would be Isaiah. And the holiest man there was, when he gets any vision of who God is in his holiness, all he can do is condemn himself. When you look at this word woe in Isaiah, you'll find it's used over and over again. Woe to the rich who rip off the poor. Woe to those who abuse alcohol and just end up being in a drunken stupor. Woe to people who are worshiping false gods. Woe, 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 says the prophet. Woe to everybody. Judgment of God on everybody. But when Isaiah sees the Lord in his essence, there's only one person he pronounces a woe upon, and that is himself. And when we see the Lord for who he is, we stop condemning everybody else and we start condemning our own flesh. Because we, our eyes have seen the king. So then look what happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. So notice what the seraphim does. He takes the coal from the altar and touches the very place where Isaiah felt the most sensitive. And that was his filthy preaching mouth. And the seraph put the coal there. Can you imagine? Your lips are one of the most sensitive uh, areas on your body. The, the nerves are right at the edge, uh, right there on the skin. It can feel everything. Just singeing your lips. You ever just drunk a hot cup of coffee and you know, toasted your lips? You know what that feels like. Well, Isaiah gets the treatment to show that his lips are being singed with uh, a coal of holiness. It touched my mouth and said, Look at the words. Behold, this has touched your lips. And here is the good news of the gospel. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's no other way, gentlemen, to come into the presence of God, to have clean hands, clean lips, pure heart. Even if you exceed Isaiah, which some people may have done, it's not enough. Isaiah knew it. You do not have the credentials to walk into the presence of this God. You do not have the credentials to survive His judgment of you. This powerful God is going to judge the entire world. He has made everything. That's how powerful He is. He is perfectly holy, and He insists that anything in His presence be holy, and we're not. You can see here in the text Holy Isaiah had to have something done for him. Holiness had to be given to him. Cleansing had to take place from another place. He couldn't produce it. And it was the seraph who announced on behalf of God, your guilt is simply taken away and your sins are atoned for. Now, gentlemen, this is a foretaste of something that was going to happen 800 years later. When... Jesus Christ came. He said that the one Isaiah saw high and lifted up was himself. It was a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus Christ does for men who are made in this vast universe for whom holiness, from whom holiness is required and they don't have it. And they can't survive the judgment of God Jesus Christ came to provide that. 
when he died on the cross, on Calvary's cross, he took all of the judgment, all of God's wrath that was due you. And he bore the burden of that divine wrath on himself as your substitute. He sent his spirit to dwell in your heart, to cleanse you, now gradually, one day perfectly. So that just as Isaiah got singed and made acceptable in God's sight, you too will be made perfect in His sight. That's the work of redemption. David is asking the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? He said, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And let's keep reading. Notice that those who approach him, this is B, verses 5 and 6, those who approach him will be blessed. He, that is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and we've seen this can only be done by a work of God for us, that person will be blessed. Those who approach him will be blessed. Look at verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That word righteousness is the same word for justification or some translations have it vindication. He will receive vindication or justification. That is, you'll receive what you need to be justified before God. And Paul explains this in Romans. We've studied this in Amen before. Paul explains that the justification or the righteousness that is required of us to enter joyfully into His presence is given to us in toto the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ. So when you trust God's provision in Jesus Christ, you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, His work on the cross avails for you completely. All your sin is cast on Him, and all of His perfection is imputed to you. It's given to you in toto. And you stand before God, and I mean this reverently, with as much right to heaven as Jesus has. Because you have His righteousness clothing you, making you acceptable to God. That's the reason that Christians are meant to be joyful. Because even though we're a bunch of knuckleheads and failures every day, we do all kinds of stupid stuff and we sin against God, we know that our status before Him is one of holiness. And one day, our character will equal our status because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're confident that He's receiving us into heaven. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? If you're in Christ, you will. I will. That's who. Because we've been blessed with vindication, with justification, with righteousness from God. And he says in verse 6, Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So gentlemen, this amazing God, with all of His creative powers and His handiwork and His his enormous strength and might. And in the purity of His holiness, you get to gaze on Him. Blessed are the pure in heart, says Jesus, for they shall see God. And that's the highest privilege of any human being. Let's keep reading in the text. We have a few minutes left. The Lord is sovereign over the earth. The Lord is holy. But look lastly, the Lord is a mighty warrior. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Look how David describes him. The Lord, that is Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This is David, the warrior. David, the giant killer. And David says, who is this king that you're allowing to come into Jerusalem? And the gatekeepers, of course, are asking, who's at the gate? Who wants to be let in? You say it's the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? David said, I'll tell you who this king of glory is. He's the strong and mighty warrior. He is Israel's champion. He is the commander of the Lord of hosts. He's our, he's our captain in the well-fought fight. And this is who God is. He is fighting for His people. 
you know, the politicians all say, I'm fighting for you. And I'm just, you know, I'm sure you're like me. You're thinking, yeah, right. You're fighting for me. All the corruption, all those lies. You were fighting for me the whole way through. All the billions that you earned and ripped people off went bankrupt. All the lies you told and, you know, kept for yourself. All these fancy speaking engagements you make with, you know, earning $100,000 per speech, which I'm sure you earned with these wonderful, beautiful speeches that you give. Uh, You're doing all this just for me. What a wonderful thing to have someone like that. You know, these two candidates, both of whom are really fighting for us. Don't you feel secure? I'm just so, so grateful for this. You know, to have people of that caliber fighting for me, I'm so, I just, I don't know what to say. I'm so humbled. (laughs) Here's what David is saying. The one who made Earth and Mars and Jupiter and Pluto, the one who made the Milky Way and the one who made all the galaxies, he is your warrior. And he is truly fighting for you. Let me tell you what he did and what he's doing. When he sent his son as the captain of all the hosts, the one who's leading all the angels, leading all the warriors, the seraphim and the cherubim, they're all fighting for you. Here's what he came to do. He came to defeat what the devil had done when he tempted you in the Garden of Eden and told you that something was beautiful and that you'd be like God if you took it. And if you worship some other God, you'd be better off. And you fell for it. And ever since that time, you've been in misery. And you've been facing death and disease and destruction. All through the millennia, we've been facing, facing death and disease and destruction. And we've been without hope. And God sent His only Son to come to this planet. This little teeny planet. One of one billion trillion planets. He sent Him here to rescue you and defeat the evil one and all of His minions and to undermine all of their stratagems and to set you free from the bondage to their will. And he did that by sending his son to die on Calvary's cross, at which time he paid the penalty for your sin. But let me tell you what else he did on the cross. Paul says in Colossians 2 that he defeated all the underpowers of the world. He defeated them and held them up in public spectacle. It looked like Jesus was a public spectacle, naked on a cross, with a spear in his side and nails in his hands and his feet. But Paul says, no, it was just the opposite. A public spectacle was made of the evil powers. Jesus defeated the evil powers, broke their bonds on you during that event on Calvary's cross, verified by his mighty resurrection. He has gone to the right hand of God. He is there ruling in his right hand. He is governing everything. And we are told in Romans 8 that He's governing everything so that even the things that feel painful to you are working out for your salvation. Everything is working for your good if you're in Jesus Christ. This mighty warrior controls not only the creation, but the maintenance of this creation. And He controls the future, not just the past. And He is organizing everything to bring you into the city. And then the angels will say, who are these kings and princes, these princesses who want to come into the city of God? And they'll all say, here are the the mighty warriors with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them all in. They're his people. That's how you're getting into Jerusalem. That's how you're going to see God is because God himself is a mighty warrior who defeated the evil powers for you. Here's David's point. We have to close with this. We're about out of time. But look at the so what's. Four things. First of all, we are managers, not owners. So be sure that whether you're engaged in politics or you're engaged in business or you're engaged in some financial transaction or you're just driving down the street that you realize whose world you're living in. You're renters. And you're managing somebody else's property. You don't own anything. So we all need to humble ourselves. Especially the more you have, the more you need to humble yourself. Because the temptation is to believe what everybody else is saying about you. That because you have all this stuff that you claim that you own, that means you must be greater than the person who doesn't own as much as you do. It's all a lie. Total lie. So remember that we're managers. Now being managers... 
We're supposed to manage his property well. So environmental issues become very important to us. This is his world. We're to maintain it to the best of our ability. Social justice, racism, unfairness in police, uh, policing in our city and in this nation, it's all of keen interest to us. This is his world. We're his creatures. And this place is to be managed properly. The financial uh, information that we come upon about our nation, the economic debt that we have and so on, that's of keen interest to us. The education of the next generation, that's of keen interest to us. And when some people have better access to education than other people, that's of keen interest to us. Why? We're managing this place. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, you all toil the garden and take care of this garden. And so it's our garden. Let's take care of it to the best of our ability. So first of all, we're managers, not owners. Secondly, we must worship God for His greatness in creation, providence, and redemption. So sometimes uh, Christians are not so good at this. Sometimes we'll, we'll thank Him for Calvary's cross, but we forget to thank Him for the garden in our backyard. God made everything. And we come to the sanctuary to worship Him. We come to Amen Bible study to study Him because of the amazing things He's done for us. We want, to give, we want to learn more so we can praise Him better. So the whole goal is to worship God. Thirdly, we must live holy lives in order to experience the fullness of His blessing. So yes, we're given holiness, we're given righteousness in toto upon belief. We're giving the righteousness of Christ. But we want to walk in righteousness and walk in holiness so that we know Him better. We're going to enjoy the blessings of intimacy with Him the more closely we're walking with Him. Those of you at Second know that we've been studying revival lately, and clearly if you turn to the Lord, He says He'll turn to you. That doesn't mean that He's completely cut you off and no more, no more supper for you anymore. It just means that you're not enjoying the intimacy of your own Father. But if you'll walk in holiness, walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, you will experience blessing. And lastly, we await His enthronement with joyful confidence. He's our mighty warrior. He has not finished yet. He's, he's laid the foundation. Uh, D-Day has arrived. We've hit the beaches and we've got the enemy under control. V-Day is still coming. So we'll have Victory Day later. It's coming just as surely as D-Day took place. So the cross and the resurrection have occurred. The bondage of Satan is broken. He surely is going to come back and finish the work. And because he is our mighty warrior, we know that we should be joyfully confident in him. Gentlemen, this is the world you live in. This is the God who made the world. You are his creature. Walk with a deeper understanding and appreciation for all that God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from David, this word from you. And we pray that we will continue to walk in amazement at your great glory, the glory of your creation and the glory of your redemption and the glory of the consummation of all of history when you send the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, back in all of his glory. And all of the universe exclaims, what a God of glory this is when they lay eyes upon the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we may live as princes in this world who know who the King is and who delightfully carry on your mission. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.